The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. So Matthew chapter 5 starts what is considered Jesus' best sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount. In my opinion, it's probably not his greatest sermon, but it's the longest one. So in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have one continuous sermon that Jesus gives on a mount, therefore the Sermon on the Mount. Hundreds, if not thousands, of people are listening to him. It's very, very, very early in his ministry. And it starts off by saying he sat down. He took the position of a rabbi, a teacher, and he gave what's called his yoke. This is his understanding of the Old Testament and how those scriptures should be applied to life. And, and really, I, I don't like to use this term because it has a lot of religion attached to it and a lot of stereotypes attached to it. But if we were to use the purest form of the term Christian, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount lines out what it looks like to be a Christian. What the law being fulfilled would mean in, in our lives and how we are to live that as followers of Christ or as Christians. And he starts off the first 12 verses of chapter 5 are formerly known as the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be given comfort. It's a lot of that idea. But in those 12 verses, there's eight characteristics that Jesus lays out in the Beatitudes. Eight characteristics that a Christian should possess that should be seen in their life, and it starts with humility, and then penitence before God, meekness with others, a spiritual hunger for God, mercifulness towards others, inward purity with God, peacemaking with others, and then it concludes the eighth one is sacrificial suffering. And I've taught the Beatitudes in this way. It doesn't have to be like this, but if you look at it, those seem to kind of build on one another. One, one attribute or characteristic of how you engage with others, another one that kind of is how you engage with God, and, and they kind of stair-step on one another until you get on, honestly to persecution. And I think what Jesus is saying is, hey, if, if you do this, if these characteristics are very evident in your life, there's going to be people who just don't like that. There's going to be people who look at you and they're going to say, hey, you're crazy, or hey, you, I don't like the way you live your life, and I don't like who you live your life for. And there's going to be persecution that comes to that, and you know, the, the Bible promises that. It's not one of those promises where like, I'm going to take that one to the bank. Persecution will come. But it's in there along with all the other really, really awesome ones. But I think what Jesus is trying to say is that if someone has these eight characteristics in their life, and they come from the Holy Spirit, and they come because of Jesus, it's not something that we just get ourselves to do naturally. But if we have those, those people are going to have an influence on the world, an influence for Christ, a Christian influence, if you will. And so that's why in verse 13, then Jesus begins to unpack that thought. If you look like this, you're going to be different and you're going to have an influence, a positive influence on this world for the cause of Christ. Matthew chapter five, verse 13, Jesus says, and remember who he's talking to, lots of people who've only been following him for about an hour. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Unsalty salt is not salt at all. It's useless and cannot be made salty again. Jesus uses the same illustration in Luke chapter 14. Now, the context for Luke chapter 14 is different. It's not the Sermon on the Mount. This is talking to a group of followers, but he's actually trying to get them to draw a line in the sand. He's trying to get them to count the cost. He's saying, hey, if you want to follow me, 
it's going to cost you your life. It's a huge concept, and he wants them to get it. This is a little later in his ministry. And like any good preacher, he pulls out another, an illustration from the past, a good story. You've never heard a preacher reuse stories, I'm sure. But in Luke chapter 14, after Jesus has said, if you want to follow me, you've got to hate your father and your mother. Don't have time to unpack that, but it's, it's not as bad as it sounds. He says, you've got to count the cost. He tells two parables. He talks about a guy building a tower. Hey, you wouldn't want to be a guy that sets out to build a tower, maybe 10 story. Don't count the money in the bank, though. You only get five stories built, and everyone drives by your tower and goes, you're only halfway done, man. Don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be like the king who has 10,000 men in his army and is about to go to war with a king that has 20,000 men. You need to count the cost. You need to find a way to make peace. So after all of that, after all of that, what it costs to follow Jesus, he goes in Luke chapter 14, verses 33 through 35. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Okay, that's a big statement, right? That is not a good way to get a huge crowd to follow you. The cost for admittance here is everything you've got. I definitely would not expect the next words out of his mouth to be these. Salt is good. (laughs) But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, Jesus, to my knowledge, is not a chemist, okay? Does not have a chemistry degree. He probably is responsible for making all the elements, so that probably puts him in a pretty good league. But anyway, um, there's a problem with his illustration, with his parable. Sodium chloride, salt, cannot lose its saltiness. It's a very resilient chemical compound. It can't become less salty. It's just salt. It's what it is. It's very simple. It can't lose its saltiness. So either Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about, Jesus doesn't have a chemistry degree, or there's another way to look at this. And I believe it's number three. I think there's another way to look at this. And in fact, the the language here benefits this. Instead of translating it loses its saltiness, I think a better translation is becomes defiled. If salt becomes defiled, how can it be undefiled? How can it become salty again? And in fact, to everyone hearing it, I think the reason why he used it twice, and he may have used it a whole lot more, it's just recorded twice in the Gospels, I think the reason why he uses it is because they live right next to the Dead Sea. Anyone ever been to the Holy Land and got to swim in the Dead Sea? I have not, but has anyone in here? We've got a couple. A couple Dead Sea, three Dead Sea swimmers. You guys can have a reunion in the lobby, donut holes. The salinity of the Dead Sea, you kind of float on top of the water. I, I hear it's crazy, okay? The, the three people can attest to it, maybe. Um, but they live near the Dead Sea. And around the shores of the Dead Sea, there is a crust of salt, okay? The water evaporates, the salt comes out of the air. There's a crust of salt. Well, like any good entrepreneur... There are people around the Dead Sea who will go bag up that soil and try and sell it as salt. You put it on your food, it will taste salty because there's salt in it, but you also got all the other junk from the dirt. You've got all types of things that are mixed in there. And that salt loses some of its properties, its abilities, okay? There are many things that salt can be used for, but there was two primary ones in the first century. One was to preserve food, and the other was to flavor food. 
Okay, in the first century, you don't have any reliable means of refrigeration, so you want your food to last more than a day or so. What do you do? You pack it in salt. Now, Jesus is more than likely referring to this when he gives this parable. You are the salt of the earth. You are the moral preserving agent of this world. You are the one that when you get packed around those in this culture, you help preserve them. You also flavor them with Christ. It's pretty explanatory what Jesus is doing here, but he's saying that the salt that has become defiled is useless. It's not good for flavoring, and actually, you're going to have to throw out your food because it's not good for preserving either. And everybody sitting there listening to him on this day would have either known someone who'd been duped by a bag of Dead Sea salt, or they themselves had to throw out their meat for the month because they packed it in defiled salt. How can salt that's become defiled become salty again? It can't. It'd be very impossible to go through that bag of Dead Sea soil salt and be like, that's dirt, that's salt. You can't do that. It's useless. It should be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It has no purpose. So now that we kind of understand what Jesus is talking about here, we go on. There are people, okay, who are pure in such a way, primarily with those eight characteristics that Jesus has already mentioned, that they will be able to simply live their life in this world and people will be influenced by them for the cause of Christ. And when you start to think back through those things, humility, meekness, peacemaking, you're like, yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that. Have you ever used the phrase, they are simply the salt of the earth? Now, if you haven't, it's probably because you're less than 30, okay? But if you have, more than likely you got a few gray hairs, but that's all right. I've used it to define people, and when doing so, it is a great badge of honor. To refer to someone as a salt of the earth, it sounds silly, but what you're saying is there's no one better. There's no one more pure. And, and I'm not talking about purity just in sinfulness. I'm talking about just there's no one more genuine. There's no one more real. There's no one easier to be around. They are just the salt of the earth. They're always worried about others and not about themselves. They are just the salt of the earth. That is a badge of honor to be worn proudly because that comes from one who has matured and been refined and has the characteristics from the Beatitudes. These people can cause real change. What Jesus is wanting his followers to understand is that you cannot play both sides. You cannot be the salt of the earth and be defiled by other ingredients from this world. Now, I'm not saying you're not gonna go to heaven. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm saying if you wanna have the kind of influence that Jesus is describing here in the first part of Matthew chapter five, then you must be pure cannot be defiled by this world. You're, you're merely visiting. You're someone passing through. And I think as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, it should be our goal to be this kind of influence, to be this kind of influencer, to be the salt of the world or the salt of the earth. But there's a second metaphor. There's a second metaphor that I feel is a little bit more aggressive. And Jesus goes into that back in Matthew chapter five, verses 14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world. 
Second metaphor, salt, light. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Around here, Newcastle's about as high up as you get, right? If you look top, we don't got a lot of hills, but Newcastle's about as high as you get. You can look from miles away and see the lights of Newcastle. Can't hide it. Couldn't try. I mean, if you wanted to, you couldn't. It's, two, it's the highest point around. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. You wouldn't do that. That's nonsense. Instead, they put it up on a stand, and it's able to give light to everyone around it, everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. There's a easily traceable thread throughout all of Scripture. It is the idea that light conquers darkness. Every single time it's used, that is the takeaway. The darkest of spaces can be overcome by the smallest of lights. But darkness cannot squelch the light. It, can't, it doesn't have the ability. It doesn't have the properties. It is impossible to do so. And so all throughout, God is seen as light this world is seen as darkness, and God is shining his light into the darkness to illuminate the need for him. And when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, you are that beam that is penetrating the darkness, that is illuminating the things that are supposed to be left unseen. And when you do so, when your light shines before others, people will see your good deeds, and they'll give you a high five. No, it's not what it says. People will see your life, and your life will be one that glorifies God, that glorifies the Father in heaven. A very literal interpretation of this means they will see your life, your light, and they too will turn to the light. So I know there's a bunch of stuff like, hey, you know, you're never going to win someone to Jesus just by living a good life. It's hard to not use words, but I would say that Jesus says, let your light shine. Let your light shine and see what happens. It's a good way to wake up every morning and think about your life. There's many, though, even in this room, and I'm not going to be too heavy here, but there's many in this room who are afraid to let their light shine because they think the darkness is so powerful. They're afraid to let it shine. They're the people who put their light under a bowl, under a bushel. I, I don't, you know, I don't want to be throwing Jesus in everybody's face, you know. I'm just the kind of feller that wants to do my thing, and if I want to love Jesus in private and they want to not love Jesus in private, that's just our deal. That's our thing. Yeah, I, I am not going to be the one that's always up in people's grill. There's people who just get all weird and think, God, do I really want to live so differently than my neighbor's? just kind of want to blend. I just kind of want to be accepted. I just kind of want to fit in. There's those who don't want anyone to think that they're judging them. There's those who feel like your life is such a mess that no one could look at it as an example. There's those who are just simply afraid of what people might say. I'm going to keep my light pretty dim and hidden just because I don't really want to face the scrutiny on social media or from other people. This is my favorite one. Um, 
and I hear this a lot. I, I work in the secular world, dude. Like in the secular world, you don't get to be doing this stuff. You'll get fired. And you don't know because you work at a church where your light's encouraged to shine. I want to know the last person who got fired for being humble, merciful, peacemaking, and sacrificial. If you did get fired for one of those things, please find me afterwards because we're going to get rich. Okay? We are going to sue them a lot. You don't lose your job for being a lie. You lose your job because you don't understand how to effectively share your life. You put it out there in offensive ways. The secular world is where your light needs to shine the most. These are all simply excuses birthed out of a lack of belief in the power of light. Church, it's powerful. Light is powerful even in the darkest of places. It's powerful and it's effective and it causes change. Now, remember, back to the salt, can't be both. Can't be shining your light and then have all this hidden stuff. It needs to be pure, but light is powerful. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have within them the light of life. Life in Christ produces light. Philippians 2, 14 and 15, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Going back to the salt. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. If you do so, then you will shine among that generation like the stars in the sky. Got to spend a week in Colorado not too long ago. Middle of nowhere. At nighttime, it gets dark up there. Talking about dark, dark. You walk out of your cabin door and you look up and you instantly go, oh, I heard this universe was big, but now that I can see more than the Devon Tower, <laughs> quite, a bit of, quite a bit of beautiful stuff up there. That awe-inspiring, breathtaking, overwhelming idea of great darkness illuminating great light is what Jesus just used, or Paul here used, to describe the church. It's awe-inspiring. It's mesmerizing. It makes you want it more. Shine so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is not about an award. This is not about a high five. This is not about being better than someone else. This is about allowing others to see God in you in hopes that they might glorify him too. That's the call. That's why Jesus opens up his greatest sermon with this idea of influence in this world to be salt and light, to be a preserving and a showing agent of God's love to a lost and dying world, to let them know and see that God made them and that he loves them, that if God is for them, 
then so are we. Let them see that and glorify the Father in heaven. Salt and light. I'm going to read the five or the eight characteristics again. Because I really do believe that saltiness comes from these things. I don't think that Jesus just went off on a tangent right after describing the Beatitudes or these eight characteristics. So I want you to identify these characteristics in your life. And it's either yes, it's there, or no, it's not, or I need to work on it. It's just, I mean, it's really one of three answers only. The first one that I think makes you salty and lets your light shine is humility. And building upon that is penitence before God. Humbling yourself before a God that is bigger than you. Meekness. That's kind of a tough one for us because we don't use that word a lot. But it's in how you view others, in how you engage the world around you. Spiritual hunger. During our 21 days of prayer leading up to Easter, we talked a lot about wanting more of God, about desiring more of him and craving more of him. That spiritual hunger fuels you. It fuels the light. It fuels your willingness to show good deeds to others. Mercifulness, because you were shown great mercy. Inward purity, because sin really does matter to God no matter what other people may try and tell you. Peacemaking, as much as it is up to you, be at peace with all. As much as it is up to you. And then sacrificial suffering, suffering well for the glory of God. Where do you need to allow Jesus to grow you? Which of those areas do you need to let him work in and through you. It may be all of them, maybe one of them. You may be like, I am the salt of the earth. Good for you. Better let that light shine, you salty head. As the band comes back up here, I want to challenge our church to shine. To shine like those beautiful stars in the heaven. To shine in such a way that the world around you will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It is not easy. I realize that. It requires a ton of growth and maturity that comes through seeking God and being in his word. I understand that. This isn't one of those talks where you're just like, done. Man, I'm glad I went to church today because I fixed it all. If you think that, you've kind of missed the whole point. You are reflecting a light that lives within you that you are not the source of. You just reflect it. And so, as you wrestle, as you think through this, letting your light shine, we're going to respond. We're going to have people up here that would love to pray with you. We're going to have communion in the back of the rooms to remind you of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you, and we're going to sing, and we're going to worship, and we're going to give him the glory that is due.